ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Betrayal, denial, abandonment, these are all themes that we have discovered in, uh, in Mark's gospel. Okay, there we go. Uh, in Mark's gospel, and, and especially here in chapter 14, right? And so you just kind of get this feeling after last week that time is running out. You know, th there's some things that are happening here. But there have been some encouraging moments, such as the woman who broke the alabaster uh, you know, glass and, and she pours it over Jesus for his burial. There's the moment at the Passover meal. Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper, but he does it in the midst of this, this celebratory meal of, of, you know, redemption and liberation. But here we return to our chiastic form, and we notice that we are at the middle of this structure that we have found ourselves in. And I've said often, when you find these, these literary forms, then they usually are pointing, they come into this middle part. So here we see in between all of this treachery and the disciples, you know, abandoning Jesus and everything else, there is this pause. There is a pause that we find of a time of quietness, a time of prayer. And it's very important that we understand this text because, um, because if we don't, we, we miss out on so much. So we look at verse chapter 14, and uh, we'll just start in verse 32, and I'll just start reading a little bit here, because it says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. Now let's stop here. When they left from the Passover meal, where did they go? They went to the Mount of Olives, right? So here is the Temple Mount. And over here, this is the Mount of Olives. Now they come to Gethsemane. Does anyone know where Gethsemane is? Gethsemane is the lower part of the Mount of Olives. And it really is, is somewhere in between the wall here. And we'll talk a little bit more about this structure right here when we come to worship. But this is, this is where we are. It, it's down at the bottom of the Mount. The word Gethsemane, does anyone know what the word means? means olive press in Hebrew. And so here, this, here is this place, and more than likely it was a privately owned grove of olive trees. Uh, John calls it a garden, and he says it's something that they entered. So it, it tells us that it was more than likely something that was walled in, in this particular place. It was a place that Jesus and his disciples went often, right? Because it was here, I think. Oh, there it goes. Uh, it says in Luke, he says this was their custom. So, guess why Judas brings them to, to the arresting party to Gethsemane? Because it was a place they often met with Jesus. This was a very familiar place. Why has Jesus come to Gethsemane? What is, what is he's come to do? He's come to pray, right? He's come to pray. Uh, in Mark, we have a couple of other places where it says Jesus went to pray. And in those places, Jesus leaves the group. 
he prayed by himself. And this time he, he's still kind of praying by himself, right? But he does take some of his disciples with him. Who does he take? Peter, James, and John. What are, who are these guys? Yeah, the inner circle. They're kind of like the inner circle of the inner circle, right? Uh, because all the disciples were called. These were the closest people to him. But there are these three that we find, and they have witnessed some pretty amazing things in Mark. Do you remember any of those? What was that? Transfiguration. What else? There was the raising of the dead child. And then, you may not remember this part or even remember seeing it, but back in chapter 13, verse 3, it's the inner circle who came to Jesus and said, what do you mean about the temple's going to be destroyed? When, when will this take place? Right? Um, but Jesus, it, he has predicted the failure of who? Last week. Who else? Who else? All of them, right? So it's like, well, why do, why do these three get to go into the garden? And, and I really believe, in my personal opinion, because of what we are just reading and the way we're going to, to understand a little bit more, I think, really think it has to do with Jesus wants someone with him. This is a very dark, dark time for Jesus. And we're seeing the humanity of Jesus like we have never seen the humanity of Jesus. And so, it says he was distressed. I think it's important to understand these words. Um, because I believe Jesus is he's having a panic attack. So, distress means to be or become excessively affected by emotion. It's used both negative excitement, such as fear, which is what's happening here. And it's also used in a positive excitement. This word is only used in the Gospel of Mark. And we've seen it at least one other time. And it's used in the positive light where the crowds were greatly amazed. It's the same word. But then when, at the resurrection, they're going to see the resurrected Jesus. And they're going to be alarmed. There's some folks who are going to be alarmed. Um, but this is a very negative thing. Also, it says he's troubled. And it means to be or become subject to extreme mental or spiritual anguish and distress, sometimes to the point of losing one's composure. And, and we, we see that with Jesus in the garden. He is absolutely losing his composure. And the other thing is that he's greatly distressed. He's crushed by grief. Look at that definition. Understood as if surrounded by sadness. In other words, there's nothing... It just, it, it just, that feeling that the whole place is just, it's overwhelming. I talked to Peyton about this. I just, you know, I said, you know, the biggest struggle I'm going to have today is really conveying this for what it is. I, I you know, I know I'm going to leave this morning and I'm going to feel like I didn't, I wasn't able to really reach the depths of what's happening here with Jesus. Um, it's, it's a, this is a really, we just can't pass it by. It's just something here some, that's very, very deep and very dark at what's happening. Yes, Ethel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
And, and here's the thing. It says that he was burdened to, how, to what point? To the point of death, right? And, and what we see here with Jesus and what he's saying about, you know, how he's feeling and all of this, it, you know, the, the scholars will tell you this is coming from Psalm 52, 42. And, and it's specifically uh, verse 11, but here verse 6 starts off saying, My soul is cast down within me. But here it is, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Now watch the latter part of this psalm. Hope in God, for I shall, gain pray, uh, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And this is the way these psalms often go, these laments. And uh, some believe that he, he's pointing out to this psalm because it's here that he's going to have to come out and completely trust in God. Tr completely trust in the Father. He's not there yet. And we're going to see that. He's not there yet. Um, but this, this has happened. Um, Jewish laments, folks, people poured out their heart to God. There's just this rush of emotion and passion and even retaliation. It's just raw as it's being brought before God. And here we see Jesus is doing this. All right, so Jesus goes a small distance, so that indicates to us that the, the inner circle, they were probably able to hear or see certain things. We don't, we can only guess how much they saw or heard before they went to sleep. But Jesus falls to the ground. This is what Ethel was talking about. He just absolutely falls to the ground and he begins praying and it emphasizes to us the depth of the emotion of this moment. And what is he praying for? I want this hour, this cup, I want to escape it. I want to escape it. What, what did the cup symbolize? His death, his torture. And I think even more than that, his messianic destiny, which he's already pointed out to give his life as a ransom for who? For many, right? So the image of the cup, have we heard of the image of the cup before in Mark? Give you a hint, James and John. James and John, remember they came to Jesus and they said, we want the prominent seats. We want to sit on the right and left hand of Christ, you know, of you, Jesus, in glory. Can you give us that? And that's when Jesus says, you know, do you really think that you can drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of? Or be baptized by the baptism that I baptize? And so at this point, do what? No, they, they really didn't. Because they respond, yes, of course course just like last week oh no Jesus will never deny me right so at this point Jesus could uh, at this point Jesus could speak of his of this cup in a calming way right but here we see when Jesus speaks of the cup he is horrified by it he's absolutely horrified prayers asking God to change his mind is not considered defiant. 
but trusting that Yahweh listens and he grants requests. But in the end, what? You said it. Your will be done. So he appeals to God in this prayer in an unusual way. He calls him Abba, Father. And um, Mark is the only one, by the way, that uses the word Abba in reference to the garden scene. Abba is a Greek transliteration of an Aramaic word meaning Father. Um, And that's interesting. um, Because it's a term of intimacy, of trust, of affection. And we don't need to, to get distracted by this word Um, by the the definition that you hear preachers often use to describe our English word for daddy, because, folks, this is not a childish, um, this is not about a childish thing. There's nothing childish about what's happening here. This, folks, is a special relationship of intimacy. And even the rabbis did not, they did not say, Abba. Because they didn't believe they had that kind of intimacy. But Jesus has this kind of intimacy with the Father. Which is really cool for us later on. Why? Because he says we can call him Abba. We need to understand the intimacy here. Now, some people think, well, they didn't didn't say Father. No, that's not true. When they prayed, they prayed Father. But what they did not use is Abba. That is the more intimate relationship uh, of a word so despite this heavy weight Jesus is still putting his hope in God as the psalmist says your will be done all right let's talk about the cup for just a second Uh, we talked about what it represents Uh, this is the prophets used a lot of metaphors in speaking about God's wrath and God's judgment and when we talk about the cup that's what we're talking about And in order for you to understand the cup, you have to go back to the Old Testament. I'm going to use one particular verse this morning, and then I'll use another one during worship just to show you the differences. Uh, But here, Isaiah 51, he says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of Yahweh, the cup, here it is, the cup of his wrath. So imagine, this cup is in God's hand. And he says, who have drunk from the dregs. Anybody know what the dregs is? It's the bottom. It's the leftovers. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, what you see at the bottom. He says, they've drunk from the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Okay? So here are these people that he's talking about here. They They are going to be punished because of rebellion, because of idolatry, because of injustice. And he says that he is going to give them this cup to drink. Now, what's interesting is he is, he is uh, referring to this cup as a cup of wine that has high alcoholic content. Now, what's interesting about it is this is what people want. This is what people desired. And so it's, it's a paradox. God's judgment on evil takes the form of something that they want. 
And he says, here you go. And it's, it's in God's hand. And you can almost see them drinking it. And God's hand is making them drink it all the way to the bottom. And how do they leave? They're staggering. They're drunk. Until eventually they fall and they meet their destruction. Or they come to ruin. Jesus is called to drink the cup of God's people. What they have done in their rebellion, in their idolatry, in their injustices, and God is asking Jesus to drink the cup that they deserve so that they don't have to. Do you see that? It's very important you understand that. He's drinking a cup that was meant for all of us to drink of ourselves. The spiritual danger of the hour is not limited to Jesus, is it? He, what does he tell the, his inner circle here? He says, you need to be praying. So that you don't enter, temptation, enter into temptation. And he speaks specifically the first time to who? Peter, right? Peter's, his, his trial's coming this night. It's coming. And he's telling them. And, and, and their, their trial, their dark night is going to be different. It's going to be lesser than what Jesus is. But it is dark and it is going to be difficult. And, and there's a point here. We also notice this theme of three. Do you notice that throughout this text? There's three predictions, three fulfillments, three narratives. We find three prayers. There are three times the disciples slept. And then, of course, that we're going to see in a couple of weeks, there's three times that Peter denies Jesus. And it's underscoring the failure of these disciples. All right? So the hour has come, and they're napping. When Jesus finds him sleeping, how does he address Peter? Okay, that's what I was looking at. Simon. Who's Simon? That's his original name. Okay. Jesus gave him the nickname Peter. This goes way back. Did you know this is the only time after Jesus gives him his nickname that he calls him Simon? Does anyone know what Peter means? Rock. What's Peter doing in the garden? Is he acting like a rock? He, he absolutely is not. The second time Jesus come, Mark tells us that their eyes were very heavy. Uh, it's just weighted down. And what it's emphasizing to us is the flesh. How weak is the flesh? This is the emphasis that's being placed here. They don't know how to respond. Did you notice that? They don't know what to say. And it shows what? They're not understanding the significance of the moment. They're, they don't understand Jesus, really, when it comes down to it. Uh, so Jesus' prayer ends when he senses that um, the betrayer has come. And notice what he says, the Son of Man is betrayed where? 
into the hands of sinners. This is a fulfillment of something Jesus has already said all the way back in Mark chapter 9 when he was given that first prediction. And he says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. And who is it that's showing up? Judas. We find the first fulfillment of our chiastic form. Jesus gave the prediction, and now it's about to be fulfilled. So this posse shows up, heavily armed. Um, they, they act like Jesus is some kind of zealot that's, that's leading this uprising. They're treating him like he's a criminal. Who's the only criminal in the crowd right now? It's, well, Judas, but someone else, more specifically, is the Sanhedrin, right? Especially any scribes that are there. Remember what Jesus said? He says, you, you have turned the temple into a den for robbers. And now they come out, and they're treating Jesus as if he's a robber. They, they were not treating the temple as a place of prayer. Remember that? And what are they doing here? They're interrupting Jesus' prayer. Is there a greater villain in the Bible than Judas? I'm not sure. I mean, we, we see some pretty bad people, you know. Jezebel comes to mind. Uh, there, there's, just, there's some really evil people. But I don't know if anybody tops uh, what's happening here. And one thing I notice is, how does Mark refer to him? As what? Betrayer, but something else. One of the twelve. Why do you think Mark puts that in there? Who's Judas to Jesus? He's one of his closest associates. One of the very people that Jesus should have trusted. He's one of the twelve, and he's a betrayer. He is the betrayer. What was the sign to signal the arresting party? A kiss. Now, um, it was a common form of greeting. Uh, you know, it, you know we, we do things a little different in our culture, but that was a common, especially for a disciple to kiss a rabbi. It was, it was something that was affectionate. Uh, Mark really doesn't dwell on it like Luke does as far as with, with Judas. Luke comes and he, you know, Jesus says to him, Judas, would you portray the Son of Man with a kiss? It's almost like Mark is like, okay, Judas, here, he's done his thing, let's get him out. You know, we, we, I've had enough of Judas. He really has very little about Judas in his gospel than you find the others. But it's, it's something that is affectionate. Uh, it's a form of a special appreciation. And it's the same word, if you look this word up, it's the exact same word that's used by the father whose prodigal son had come home. And the kiss was to show he had been reconciled. It's the same word, it's used of the Ephesian elders. When the Apostle Paul is, is going to be leaving for Rome, you remember that? And they're crying and they're, and they're weeping, uh, whoops, they're crying and they're weeping uh, and kissing him was, is a, was a sense of affection and endurement. But here, the kiss, it springs the trap, right? It triggers the sting operation is, is really kind of what is happening here. So something that was supposed to be of intimacy and goodwill, now it's seen as something of treachery, something of shame and death. 
Now, this is a, a treachery that, uh, if you remember when we went through First and Second Samuel, Second Samuel talks about Joab. Joab said to Amasa, it is well with you, my, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Now, anybody takes me by your right hand to kiss me, I'm going to remember this text. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without sticking a second blow, and he died. He gives a little more details than Mark likes to do, right? So here's a, just the kiss of death. What Judas does here is the kiss of death because he's turning him over into the hands of the arresting party who are going to have this kangaroo court, you're going to see that next week, in order to have Jesus crucified. So with that, the guard sees Jesus. Judas vanishes from the story. It's almost like Mark is saying, I'm done with him. So an unnamed disciple, Mark doesn't tell us who it is, he takes out a sword and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Now Mark doesn't tell us, but John does. Who is it? Yeah, it's Peter. Peter's the one who does that. Does Jesus say, yes, Peter, this is what we want you to do? Uh, no, that's not. He stops it. Jesus stops it because that's not who Jesus is about. And he actually rebukes this, this party here, right? Because they're treating him like a thief. You've come out here with these clubs and swords, and, and it's like, this is not... If you know anything about me, this is not who I am, Jesus would say. I've told my people to love their enemies. I've told them to do good to those who harm them. I've told them to pray for those who, who uh, want to persecute them. I've told them to love all, all people. And it's like, you, you come out here and you're treating me like what? What does he say? Like a thief. Now, there's, there's some irony here as well, I think, because when Jesus goes to the cross, who is he hanging with? Two thieves, right, on each side of him. And it also is a fulfillment of Scripture of what's happening here. Because, as Isaiah tells us, he was numbered with the transgressors. And that's exactly what's happening here um, in this text as well. He is being treated in, in such a, a terrible way. All right, so then we come to verse 50. Somebody read verse 50. <laughs> okay, it was like stereo there for a minute. So do one more time, Mike. Okay, it's, it seems so almost insignificant. It's just so, such a short thing. Folks, this is the center. This is really the, the climax of the arrest scene, okay? Uh, I want you to see, I mean, it says they left him. They move away from Jesus, all right? They leave. They depart. It also says that he fled. We get that idea. They're, they're, they're in flight. They're running. And they're running for what purpose? To save their own lives, right? To save their own lives. And once again, we find another part of the chiastic structure and the prediction that has been fulfilled, right? 
So this is the, the climax of the arrest, and I'll show you why, what, what Mark has been leading up to. He's been telling us uh, back in verse 23 that they all drank of the cup at the, at the feast, the Passover festival, and, and where he institutes the Lord's Supper. And he says, this is, this, is my, this is a cup, and they all drank of it. In verse 31, we saw this last week, and they said, we all are going to be loyal. We will all be with you even if we have to die. And then it ends in verse 50 with the all, and he says, they all left. The people who drank the cup, the people who said, I'm loyal to the end, are the very people who are running away from Jesus. And these are the ones, by the way, who are in charge of spreading the good news in the future. You realize that, right? This is not a very good start. This is not a very good start at all. But Mark reminds us of something. If you go back and look right before it, it says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is a fulfillment. What did Jesus say last week when he talked to them? He gave them the passage from Zechariah. And now what do we see with the sheep? They scattered. Uh, and it seems like all is, all is bad, but we also remember the promise that Jesus gave when he, we, he talks about the regathering that's going to happen after he's raised, and there's going to be this regathering of the sheep in Galilee. Right? So no doubt the Sanhedrin believed that they had cleverly uh, accomplish their purposes. But what is Jesus letting us know? God's purposes is happening. The scriptures are being fulfilled is what Jesus says. And God's not going to fulfill this, this, his, um, fulfill his will here by swords and clubs. God is not going you know, to send an army. God's power is revealed through weakness. And that is just something that just blows over our minds. Verses 51 and 52. This is another case where Mark is the only one that puts this in here. We don't know, we have no idea who this guy is. We know he's not one of the 11 who fled. He's, it's not Judas. It's somebody who's just kind of followed them along Maybe they saw the arresting party. Maybe they, this person has come where, you know, Jesus has gone to the garden and he's just, we don't know. Um, but it's almost like, why, who is this? And there's a lot of debate, a lot of speculation. One speculation is that it's Mark. Mark just kind of inserts himself here. But we just don't know. I kind of think it's just bringing the whole sense of the abandonment. But even this unnamed disciple who runs away in his birthday suit, even he's abandoned Jesus. It's like this is complete, full, all-out abandonment of Christ. It's a complete failure. Any questions? What she said was, you know, a lot of times, you know, you hear people say, well, you know, as far as doing things, what God, well, my heart's not into it, so why should I do it? Why, you know... In other words, unless I feel good, unless I feel this sense of whatever, um, then, then I'm really not, I don't have any responsibility to it. And that's just not what happened here. In fact, what we see with Jesus is, is Jesus is making his request. Is there any doubt in your mind that Jesus is asking for this? 
No. But he also, in this prayer and in the struggle and in the laments that you see in the Psalms, it is to help bring us to the will of God. We've got to work out the will of God. And, and God's will is not always me feeling good about everything. We, we live in a very feel-good world, okay? So, you know, that's exactly, that's a great point. Father, we come to you this day, and we just thank you for your son. We thank you, Father, that we can come before you and we can call you our Abba. We're thankful, Father, that we are forgiven and we have been set free from our sins because of what your son Jesus has done for us. Because he came out on the other side and he did what, what none of us could have done. And so, Father, we come before you and as we get ready to worship you as a community of believers here in a moment, Father, may our hearts be deeply touched. May our worship before you be passionate. Just be, come from the very depths of our hearts in love and appreciation for all that's been done for us. And so, Father, help us to leave this day as different people, people who have grown closer to you because of your Son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.